This is Dr. B, and you're listening to Side Talk. Let me introduce my guest, Dr. Nancy Crown. She's a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice on the Upper West Side of New York City. She works with children, adolescents, and adults, including some who are deaf and communicate using American Sign Language. She's a graduate of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis and is a faculty of both the William Allenson White Institute and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She teaches and publishes on a variety of topics, including autism. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with just kind of a broad question. What do we mean by the autistic spectrum? That's kind of become familiar language to a lot of people, but who does that refer to and how broad a spectrum is that when we mm-hmm. use that term? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it it refers to um, a group of people who for neurodevelopmental reasons process the world differently than you or I. Um, and in terms of like diagnostic criteria, uh, that leads them to um, have communic- social communication challenges and certain cognitive rigidities like a narrow range of interest um, or a preference for routine or sameness. Um, and over time, the definition, at least in the diagnostic and statistical manual, which is the, uh, people call it the Bible of, uh, mm-hmm. mental health. I, I don't consider it a Bible, <laughs> but, um, the criteria have changed over time and to include a broader and broader group of people. Um, so it's, it's people at every level of, uh, intellectual functioning, um, and what's interesting about, I think what's interesting about the, um, the name, the autistic spectrum, the autism spectrum, is it really came from the autism community. People were using it, uh, thinking about autism as being on a spectrum, many people. And since it's a spectrum, can you distinguish maybe mild autism from more extreme autism or severe autism? Like, What's the variation in the behaviors mm-hmm. one might observe mm-hmm. between one end of the spectrum and the other? Okay. There's, you know, there's a, a difference of opinion if you talk to people with autism, um, autism advocates, as opposed to talking to professionals. Um, but, and, and that's, I think, a current, that's something I've been thinking about a lot because it's, um, it's, it's a problem. Everybody needs to be together. Right to to advocate for this population, but at any rate, um, professionals would say that mild autism um, would look like somebody who speaks articulately, um, holds down a job, um, maybe. Uh, has difficulty in relationships. If they don't hold down a job, it's not because of their ability at the job or their intellectual level. It's because of their difficulty with the relationship part of jobs. Um, severe autism, according to the professional literature, would look like somebody who's nonverbal, maybe somebody who 
whose intellectual functioning appears really limited. Um, but in, in the current diagnostic uh, parlance, in order to get a diagnosis on the autism spectrum, you need to require support, significant support. You can't just be somebody – and this this is a point of controversy, but somebody who's a little different but who doesn't need support to function and have a have a life. And you mentioned social cognition is mm-hmm. one of the distinctive features of autism, you know, speaking about it broadly. Can you explain just to people what that means or, you know, what that translates into in terms of navigating the world of people? Mm-hmm. Well, the way I think of it is that I, I, when I said who this label refers to, I said a group of people who for neurodevelopmental reasons, right? So the, the, the neurology of a person with autism is different. I mean, all of us have different neurological systems, right? But, but there are certain differences that lead to common, um, behaviors or challenges and, and strengths that we see. So, um, I think that applies to social cognition. The way that a person with autism experiences the social world is different from the way that you or I do. And the way understands, sorry, and understands the social world and social interaction. And maybe could you give us maybe an example, just sort of an everyday example of how a kid who's autistic might experience the mind of another person, you know, how, are they able to read behavior or read the motivation or intention behind behavior? Um, are they just reacting to the behavior itself? Are they sometimes not even noticing the behavior of another person who's interacting with them? You know, I don't know if I can answer that, Chris, because first of all, I think it's different for different kids. Secondly, I think we'd have to ask an autistic person. Um, and I think it's a really important thing that we do, that we look, that we read what people with autism have written and that we ask people with autism about their experience. One of the things that's so challenging as a parent, and I work with parents and I, I am a parent of an adult on the autism spectrum, is it's really hard to understand the mind of a person with autism. So in order to answer that, I would have to understand the mind of a person with autism. I th- I've spent 34 years, that's my daughter's age, working on that, and I think I've made some progress, but... Um, there's a saying in the autism community, if you've met one person with autism... You've met one person with autism. There's you can't a really generalize and extrapolate based on, an, you know, a group of kids who have autism. It just there's so much variation, or you, it's really the person who's there, the person of the person with autism who um, is important to consider. Yes, I mean there are some generalizations that are made, and I think are fair to make, like people with autism process the world differently. 
Um, that leads to, among other things, for most people, sensory sensitivities or hyposensitivities. So one thing that we can um, deduce is that a baby with autism um, so, uh, might have a harder time experiencing a good mother as a good mother because what a good mother does may be overwhelming for a baby with autism. It may be too much. What's the kind of thing that might be too much that's around in the sensory area? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, for example, eye contact. It may be overwhelming. Certain sensory experiences are um, – they can be actually painful for somebody with autism or they can be not perceived, right, or they can be disorganizing. And does that include reacting to certain things in the environment, just day-to-day living in sometimes very extreme ways? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you see or you probably heard about meltdowns, which are different from temper tantrums in that they are um, a reaction usually to extreme anxiety um, and often there's a sensory trigger. And what, I mean, I think you've already sort of indirectly alluded to this and, you know, you're a parent as well. You're speaking as a parent and as a professional. What are some of the typical challenges that parents have Mm -hmm. in parenting kids with autism? Well, the first one I, I think is what you're referring to when you say I've alluded to it is the challenge of understanding a mind that's different from my own. Right. That's such an important thing as a parent to be able to put yourself in the mind of your child. And that is really challenging. Um, from, from the get go. So it's hard. I, I can't draw on my own experience. Right. And that's what we do. Um, as you move along developmentally, I think, uh, when a lot of, for a lot of parents, when they're children are young, they're children with autism, the parent does kind of a heroic job of running interference and controlling things um, to, to help the child, to support the child. There comes a time where that needs to fall away for the sake of the child's development. Some people will always need that. But it can't always, it can't continue to be the parent. So for a lot of reasons, um, I think worry and fear is a huge challenge for a parent. And it, it is behind, in my own experience and talking to other parents, it's behind a lot of the stuff we get wrong as parents. You know, we, um, we want our child to fit in and have friends and, have a sense of belonging and be safe. And so those fears, which are, which are valid, um, lead parents to over control or to sometimes to try to, um, get rid of certain behaviors that they think make the child look quote unquote strange. Um, those behaviors, in my opinion, are, um, are survival mechanisms. Is there a behavior you're thinking of as you're saying this? 
Oh, I'm thinking of like flapping hands or rocking. Um, you know, it, it's and maybe survival mechanisms is is too strong a term for all of them, right? But they have a function and a, or a meaning, and you can't just. I I think it's it's really um, unfair to the child to just try to take those away, but. I think as a parent, you, you don't want your child to do things that, you know, will draw negative attention that, that could harm the child. Are some of these behaviors, you know, when you describe them as maybe in the service of survival, could we also describe them as in the service of adaptation in terms of regulating oneself right, or right. managing one's internal stimulation? Exactly. Yeah. In good. order just to adapt to the world around them? Very good point. That's, that's a perfect example of what I mean and, and well said. And to the internal world, because the, the hypersensitivity is not only to the input from out there, sights, sounds, smells, the way things feel when you touch them or they touch your skin, but to a person's own um, internal sensations. So what do you think people tend to underestimate? What is it that we sometimes overlook in terms of their strengths? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. Um, well, it's funny you asked that just then because as I was speaking, as we were speaking, I was thinking, oh, Nancy, don't forget to add that um, even sensory sensitivity, um, you know, like the sight of a rose for my daughter brings her a kind of joy that I don't know that I've ever experienced. Um, and I think that's an experience that she's not alone. I mean, not a rose, but maybe a twirling object or um, something else. If we stick with a rose and you just imagine that for a moment, what do you think it is like for her? You know, mm. like what is her subjective experience of observing, looking at a rose that you kind of admire? Yeah. Well, we're back to, I, I think it, it looks like it fills her with, um, something incredibly joyful. Um, I'm having an association to something she said to me when she was very little. She said, Mama, I love your voice. Your voice is pink to me. Um, what do you think she meant by that? Yeah, th these are such good questions, Chris, and I, we'd have to ask her. Her experience of my voice at that time in her life, <laughs> I doubt she would, first of all, she's moved on from pink, but, um, <laughs> Uh, pink was her favorite color. Um, there's something called synesthesia, which I, which I don't think this was, um, which is when you experience things in one sensory modality as another, like, you know, blue tastes this way. I don't think that's what it was. So it's not necessarily where these sensory modalities are in dialogue with each other. And so she's describing your voice, which is in one modality, auditory, and then describing it as a color, which is visual. And that's kind of the, the, the mate, you know, what's mating there in that moment. 
I honestly don't know. I mean, this is the first time I've thought about, I haven't remembered that example in a long time. Um, and, and I've never asked myself exactly the question that you're asking. I think I've thought harder about the difficult experiences. Um, but, but I think it's important to, um, note and not forget these other experiences along with, to go back to your question, um, the strengths of, of people with autism. Um, are there other strengths that occur to you that tend to get overlooked? Well, I, again, it's person by person, but a lot of people with autism are really gifted musically. Um, they're very, uh, drawn to music. Um, my daughter, her hyper, uh, acuity auditorily, she can, we might be in a store and she'll say, is that Michael Jackson playing? I can't even hear the song, let alone identify who it is. Um, she's musical. She can sing. She loves music. Um, so I, I find, um, the way that, uh, people with autism describe things to be, um, really wonderful. Um, their take on things is often different from ours, which I think can be valuable. Um, another, I mean, music isn't the only strength. Usually people with autism have an area that they're very interested in or, or a few and their, um, you know, their knowledge and the depth of their knowledge and memory for, for that area is really impressive. Memory is often a very, uh, strong. In what sense? Like a, a memory for detail or a, a memory for, um, yeah, d- detail, um, the information, um, people with autism are, are known to be very committed, like in, in their jobs, um, very honest, um, and one thing that I think is overlooked is the the capacity uh, for deep, deep attachment. Why is that overlooked? Do you think what like what goes into that 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 hasn't been as accounted for? I think it expresses itself differently in some people with autism. So because of the need to protect yourself from overwhelming or underwhelming or disorganizing sensory experience, um, there's some avoidance that the person has to engage in, which looks like, I don't care. Um, unfortunately, it also narrows the opportunity for learning. And there are a lot of consequences to that, you know, when I'm avoiding something, I'm not open to, to learning, whether it be from another person in a relationship or, you know, in a classroom or. So that's a good segue into treatment. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about why behavioral type treatments 
tend to be the treatment of choice for kids with autism? And are there other kinds of treatments that tend to be just as effective mm-hmm. that aren't utilized as much? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think behavioral treatments, you know, in general, they're, they're designed to be more measurable. So they get a lot of airtime for that reason, not just for autism, but, um, and I think they can be useful. But I think the, the reason to, to answer your question is, I think we as a society don't do so well with people who are different. And when we see a behavior that to us is strange as a clinician or as a parent, we think, I gotta change that. And to some extent, we do, because we have to help a child with autism to live in the world such as it is, where as a species, we're not so accepting. Um, we have to try to help kids to be safe and uh, to be able to make friends. Um, so I think that is and, – and I think sometimes as clinicians, we're, we're very puzzled and frustrated – and so, you know, we feel ineffective. And this is a way to, to try to be more effective. But I think it can be also dangerous, um, for the reasons I've said that some of the behaviors that look unusual are really very needed. Um, also, I heard a podcast or uh, sorry, a TED talk recently and it, it just really struck me. It was a man with autism who said, um, I think teaching kids to do whatever a strange adult says is very dangerous. I had never thought about it that way. Hmm. Um, but I thought it was a, a chilling and important point, um, you know, to reward them for going along with, uh, what, a. a an adult who's essentially a stranger tells them to do it. This is a vulnerable population. Um, so there's a danger in nudging, pushing a kid into that kind of conformity and compliance. Right. That a behavioral treatment may facilitate or require. Right. If it's done in an extreme way. And I think behavioral treatments are becoming more modified. Um, I think everybody's coming more toward each other, um, but historically, those were, uh, you know, really. Is there a treatment out there that privileges attachment in the way that you were talking about it earlier, you know, mm-hmm. and how we underestimate the attachment capacity in a kid with autism? Is there a treatment that utilizes more of that capacity? Yeah. As a feature of the treatment? Yeah. Yeah. There's um, floor time. Which really, you know, we know as psychodynamic psychotherapists that learning takes place within the context of the attachment relationship, right? That's where it starts. That's where safety is. Um, that's the, the locus of, of so much that's important to development. And, um, floor time, which was, um, uh, developed by Serena Weeder and Stanley Greenspan, um, really makes use of the relationship with the parent and also 
and there are other treatments that are um, developmentally geared um, that are psychodynamic. They may not call themselves that. Um, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that, which um, if, I don't know that we'll have time to go into. But, um, you know, when you can develop a relationship with a child, and and I'm not saying this can't happen in a behavioral therapy, but I think the best behavioral therapies include this. So develop a relationship where you are working to understand the mind of the child and helping the child, if necessary, to understand his or her mind. Um, that's enormously important. What is when you say floor time? Like, what does that mean? Like, why that description? Does that uh, mean why sort the name? Of, yeah, does that mean like getting on the floor with the kid? Does that mean like the emphasis on eye contact and you know working at their level or what? Yeah, yeah. What's I'm it, not. What, what are its connotations? Right. I'm not trained in floor time, so um, this will be a this will not do it justice. It also has another name, which. Uh, um, has to do with, that, that points to the way, um, each child is assessed and their developmental profile of strengths and weaknesses is, um, outlined in, in great detail. And so, yeah, you get down on the floor with the kid and you really look at and work with what the child is doing. You're not imposing something on the child. You're following the child's lead and then working with that to try to get your agenda in. And when these treatments are effective, do you see development progress in a kid with autism? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in ways that you might not have expected or could be very surprised by, whatever the treatment is. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. First of all, um, early intervention is very, very important. The earlier you start, the earlier you recognize what's going on and start working with a child um, with that understanding and awareness, the better. One of the things about autism that's so um, interesting and, and I guess flummoxing is that you really don't know based on what a child looks like at two or three or four what they're going to look like. Um, there are a couple of people, uh, Temple Grandin is the most well-known, who um, is a famous autism advocate and speaker, and um, she also is very well-known for her work in uh, cattle. There's a name for it that's escaping me, but um, she builds cattle shoots that enable cattle to be less frightened um, before they're slaughtered. But, um. Which speaks, I guess, to her relationship with animals or with cattle? Like. I think speaks to her understanding mm -hmm. of, of their experience based on her own experience. Um, and some of the equipment that she designed was equipment that she used, uh, to help herself regulate. Um, but she looked very, very sort of classically autistic as a younger child. And became a uh, highly um, verbal and successful person. Same thing with Stephen Shore, who and both of these people 
um, I believe I'm right. I know this is true of Stephen Shore because I've heard him talk about it. We're not treated with behavioral approaches at the during their day. That well, I suppose it was around, but for whatever reason, their parents brought them to somebody who talked with them about themselves and really wanted to understand the workings of their mind. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess my last question is, is there a prevailing stereotype or perspective on kids with autism that's kind of persisted through the years that you've witnessed as kind of damaging or detrimental in our work and understanding of, of autism? I think is there, there one that like stands out to you? I think there are there are two. Can I can I mention yeah, two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one I've already mentioned, which is this deep capacity for attachment. Um, so I won't say too much more about that. But the other is um, lack of empathy or lack of theory of mind, um, which is a term that a lot of people have heard. But what it basically means, theory of mind, is. I know that I have a mind and that you have a mind and that our minds are different and that's what what's in our minds is different. And there are often problems there. Um and there are there is a relationship between theory of mind and empathy and um and something that in our field we call mentalization, but they are different. They're all different. They're kind of on a spectrum. So um I think people with autism express um well i think that they they can often have challenges in those areas but i think they have the potential to develop those abilities and sometimes they have those abilities but they're expressed idiosyncratically or what we would consider to be idiosyncratic so they're not they they're so we not miss recognized them. we miss them mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah. We have to stop there. So thanks very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Okay. Thanks for having me. 